T.S. Eliot. It's always a good time to quote T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot said that great literature communicates before it is understood. Great literature communicates before it is understood. Beautiful works of art, beautiful works of literature, they start to talk to us. They open up the lines of communication before we quite understand exactly what they are trying to say. We know when we encounter these things that we are in the presence of something remarkable, something good, something true, something beautiful, even if we couldn't explain why it is. I believe that the entirety of the book of Hebrews is like that. The book of Hebrews communicates far before it is understood. If you pick up the book and read it, and I challenge you to do so, there's a little handy website out there that tells you how long it will take you to read each book of the Bible. 45 minutes. Hebrews, cover to cover. That's it. 45 minutes. You all have 45 minutes in your day. Pick it up. Read it cover to cover. And I'll tell you, it will start to communicate something to you before you understand what exactly is going on there. It is rich, it is beautiful, and it is deep. Our text today is Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. Now, I've been preparing ahead a sermon series on the book of Hebrews. I've prepared about 10 or 11 sermons so far. And this sermon, it comes forth in the series. There are three sermons, uh, three sermons that precede this one all dealing with the first four verses of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1 through 4 has three sermons in my particular sermon series dedicated to it. And then we get to this passage here, Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. So there might be some background information from the first four verses that is missing here, but we'll do our very best to make this dense text as accessible as possible. And as we try to do that, we're going to examine the text today under just a singular point, a single point, that being Christ's supremacy to the angels, Christ being lifted high above the angels. This text, it's a great one, and it is an absolute masterstroke in nearly unsurpassed depth and really skillful art when it comes to the use of Old Testament texts. If you were listening as Adam was reading the text there and your ears were attuned, you would have noticed, wow, that's another Old Testament reference. There's another one. There's another one. They just keep coming after you. And because of this, this text today, it speaks to the deep continuity and the deep unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But while speaking to the deep unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this text clearly shows or illuminates the primary role of the Old Testament. It shows that there's deep unity between the Old and the New, but it also says, hey, this is what the Old Testament, what its primary role is. And that is, the primary role of the Old Testament is to provide the matrix, the nexus, the lenses through which we are to understand the Christ event. The Old Testament is the preparatory school for the New Covenant. Now think for a moment of what a preparatory school is. What a preparatory school would be. Or even if not even just a preparatory school, maybe just think about prerequisite courses for a class. They are there because without those courses, without the, the pre-work that is being done, 
the courses that they proceed would not be understandable. Right? Imagine trying to take a class in advanced calculus without ever having taken a lower level math class before. The things in that class would be way beyond your understanding. They'd be incomprehensible. And beyond that, they would sound strange. It would sound like your teacher was speaking in a foreign language. You weren't prepared for it. You didn't have the prerequisite knowledge. Our text today, it shows that the Old Testament symbolism, that it furnishes the symbolism and the language through which the New Testament is going to speak to us. In our text today, in speaking about Christ's superiority to the angels, our author is going to strengthen the case that he's already made in the first four verses. The first four verses of Hebrews, the author is out there, and he's trying to make a strong case for the grandness of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. In those first four verses, he told us that long ago that God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he says, he has spoken finally and authoritatively through his son. And then he gets to verse 4. And speaking of Christ, he says these words. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So here our author, he's going to strengthen the case that he's already made about Christ's superiority to the angels. And he's going to do so with copious uses of the Old Testament text. And in a fashion that is really fitting of the author of Hebrews, this stuff is incredibly dense. And it's so condensed with these Old Testament references, they sort of come flying at you like a quick flurry of punches from a skilled boxer. You're just like, boom, boom, boom. Another text comes at you, another one. And if you read it really quickly, you realize you kind of are stunned. You're like, what happened right here? I just was bombarded with seven different texts. What do they have to do with this superiority of Christ? They can leave you dazed, confused. The author rapid fires seven Old Testament passages in support of the case that Christ is indeed superior to the angels. He quotes Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 104, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110. Boom, 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 boom. They just come after you one after the other. Now, this incredible use of Scripture... To make one's claims, as the author of Hebrews is doing here, he's going to use scripture to make his claims. It makes it clear that the author is telling us that testimonies and evidence from matters of faith, from matters of our belief, that they should come first and foremost from scripture. Scripture takes the seat of primacy in all of our forms of argumentation about our faith and what we believe. Right? Scripture always gets first place. And that's true in regards to all areas of the Christian life and all presentations of the truth of our faith. Whether that be Christology like we're dealing with here, dealing with the nature of who Christ is in and of himself. Or maybe when we're dealing with something like apologetics, the same principle applies. Now, I love teaching things like apologetics, and I think the arguments for the existence of God have a important place in the tradition of the church and even in today's world. I think things like the teleological and ontological and cosmological, those arguments for the existence of God are good and important and they're helpful and needed indeed. But there's nowhere in the Bible that we get to a section 
on the arguments for the existence of God. If you thumb through scriptures, you, you, you go through those 66 books there, there's no section on arguments for the existence of God. So scripture, the texts of scripture, stand over and above any external arguments. As helpful as those arguments must be, they always are secondary to scripture itself. They're an ancillary support for scripture. And that's in regards to Christology, apologetics, or any other matters of the faith. Scripture is primary in all matters. It's very nice to remember that today on Reformation Sunday, right, that most fundamental pillar of the Reformation, sola scriptura. Right? Scripture is primary. But this is most pressingly true in areas like we are dealing with today in our text, in areas like Christology. When it comes to the doctrine of Christ, Scripture speaks first and foremost. And what the author makes very, very clear is the Old Testament is of immeasurable value when we are doing Christology. You cannot do Christology properly. You cannot understand the person and the work of Christ properly unless you understand your Old Testament. There's no New Testament Christians around. I think it's also important to notice that five of those seven Old Testament references in our text today Five of the seven come from the Psalms. Five of the seven. And this should clue us into the importance of the Psalms, right? into the primacy of the Psalms. It should clue us into their beauty, into their grandeur, and their deep, deep importance. That's why we preached them the last two weeks. Fittingly works into this sermon as well. The Psalms, after all, they're the prayer book that exposes, unveils, and makes known the excellencies of Christ. David He may have written the Psalms, but the Psalms are about Christ, who is at once David's son and yet David's Lord. Right? It's that great hymn that we just sang, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It says about Christ that he is the long-expected prophet. He's David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. There's nothing quite as beautiful as the theology of really great hymns. The theology of great hymns sustains the church. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. That's everything that the author of Hebrews has been saying in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. In a nutshell. Christ is David's son, yet David's Lord, and God has spoken his final, authoritative, true, and faithful word now. Long ago, he spoke by the prophets. Not anymore. Now he's spoken a different word, a final word. So back to these Old Testament references. All of these seven Old Testament citations, they show a sort of a twofold grounding for Jesus' superiority over the angels. They all have something in common. All seven of the Old Testament references show a twofold grounding, a reason why it is that Jesus is superior to the angels. On one hand, they say he is the son of God. And on the second, he himself made the angels. So the twofold grounding for Christ's superiority over the angels is he's the son of God and he made the angels. That's why he has superiority. The first two Old Testament quotes found in our text today clearly 
ground the superiority of Christ over the angels in his being son. Right, the first quote that you see there in your text is from Psalm 2, verse 7. And that quote reads, that psalm reads, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You should also notice that, that language there that is going to be used in that creed of all creeds, the Nicene Creed, right? You are my son, and in this day I have begotten you. For after all, Christ is begotten, not made. And then the second quote comes from that seminal passage in regards to covenant theology. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right? The Old Testament is flooded with these major covenantal passages. God relates to us. He's a covenantal God. He relates to us through covenants. And there's big, big passages we should all be familiar with. Genesis 9, the covenant with Noah. Genesis 12, 15, and 17, the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Moses at Sinai. But 2 Samuel 7, man, it is deeply, deeply important for understanding the covenantal structure of Scripture. That's that passage where King David is sitting there. The king of Israel. The man after God's own heart. And he says, see, I dwell in a house of cedar. And yet the Lord, he dwells in a tent. And David says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a house for God. And then God says, no, no, you're not. He speaks back to David through Nathan. He says, you're going to build me a house? I don't think so. I am going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom. And I'm going to establish from your line one who sits on the throne forever. 2 Samuel 7. Here in Hebrews, we get 2 Samuel 7 quoted And we get this section of it. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So as we said, this passage shows this twofold grounding for Christ's superiority. One, he's son. Two, he created the angels himself. And these first two references, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, They clearly ground Christ's superiority over the angels in his being son. In his being son. And secondly, we need to see how Christ is greater than the angels due to the fact that he created them. And not only did he create them, we find out right away that he created them in order that they might worship him. We see this when our author quotes Psalm 104 verse 4. 104.4, another one of the Psalms quoted. Now, I want to go back one verse before that, not quoted here in Hebrews 1, 5 through 14, to Psalm 104.3 and 4 and read them together to get a little fuller understanding of what he's referencing here. Psalm 104, starting in verse 3, speaking of Christ, reads like this. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. So we see that the book of Hebrews is telling us that Christ is the author of creation. He lays the foundations of the earth and he creates the angels. And then along with that, our author immediately then quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43, which says, Let all God's angels worship him. So Christ is shown to be the author of creation, creating the angels. 
And then our author cobbles together, curates another passage that says he creates the angels and the angels are there to worship him. This is why the angels, why they currently, they occupy a position of primacy or exaltation above us. The angels have a seat of primacy above us pre-glorified man. Because they are able to worship Christ right now in an unveiled, raw, intimate manner. That our worship here, it's just prefiguring that. It's mirroring that. We are made to glorify God and enjoy him. And we do that now by faith. They, the angels, they get to do it by sight. And hence for now, and only for now, their position is superior to ours. Continuing on in verses 10 through 12, our text reads, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So the person spoken of here is called Lord. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth. The Lord, who is shown to be the creator... The very one who laid the foundations of the earth. That's what our text is talking about here. So this one spoken of here is one who predates creation. And the text tells us that everything was created by him is eventually going to pass away. So he's the one that predates creation. And the things that he makes, they're going to be wiped out. They're going to pass away. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have no end. So the things created are going to pass away. Like a robe or a cloth, they're going to wear out. You wear the same outfit too many times, the same shirt, the same sweater. It passes through too many years, too many washing machine cycles. It fades out, loses its color. But we know from scripture that doesn't happen with Christ, right? Because he is clothed in clothing that is radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could ever bleach them, right? We hear those words from Matthew 17 and Mark 9 in the account of the transfiguration. When we see Christ in his shining, shimmering, eschatological glory, his unfading glory, clothes so white that no one on earth could bleach them like that. We know from scripture that there is no diminishing of the son's glory. The son of man is clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of Christ's head are white like wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flaming fire. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he holds the seven stars. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. We get that picture of Christ from the book of Revelation. He does not fade out. As our author states in the opening few verses of Hebrews, he can't fade out because he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there's no diminishing in Christ's glory. There's no fading out. 
Angels, who Christ is superior to, they're not eternal like Christ is eternal. There was a time when they were not. Right? For in the beginning, God created the heavens. He created the throne room. He populated it with angelic beings. But the Son is one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The Son is begotten. He's not made. The Son is that one who for us and for our salvation, He descended. He came down from heaven. And that glorious rich creed, it just hits the nail on the head over and over again. I, I believe all of life is in the Nicene Creed. It's all contained there. Just boom. It's a cosmic hydrogen bomb of a creed. Everything's there. And it also, the creed, just like our text, Hebrews here, it hits this language of heights and depths. The author of Hebrews is very, very careful to use this language of heights and depths over and over again throughout the book. And so does the creed. And it's important for us here to kind of remember who the original audience of the book of Hebrews was. This audience of Christian Jews. Now this ascending and descending language, this language of heights and depths, it was very much needed for this audience. It was very useful for them. That language of heights and depths, it gracefully fits the Jewish cosmology, which is full of all of these vertical movements and a particular understanding of the ontological ranking of things. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying in the Jewish cosmology, the way that the Jews envisioned the world, there was a sort of hierarchy, a ranking of things, ontologically just meaning according to their being, right? So the things that had more being were higher up, and the things that had less being were lower down. And particularly important to Jewish cosmology was the idea of the cosmic throne of God. They believed that it was specially but also spatially located above the heavens, above the angelic beings. Right, so God's throne had a special but also spatial hierarchy lifted above the heavens and the angelic beings. And our author knows his audience. So later in the book, in Hebrews 7.26, he famously writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Right? There's this spatial dimension that he's getting at here. Right? Jesus is fully God, and if God is spatially above the heavens and the angels, that's where the God-man has to ascend as well. Now, we know from different passages in, in Scripture, like Psalm 8 and the book of Philippians chapter 2, that there was a time where Christ prior to his exaltation, prior to his exaltation to the throne room of God, prior to that ascent, that he took a position that was lower than that of the angels. Psalm 8 reads, Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. Philippians 2. Christ, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, poured himself out, by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So the radiant, effulgent light of God descends. He drops. 
He deplanes into the very ash heap of the human condition. However, the sun is not the only one to descend. It's important for us to get that. The sun is not the only one who descends. That is not unique to Christ, the descent from heaven. Christ is greater than the angels, but an angel once descended too. And this son speaks of that descent, saying these words, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan had a descent too, but he was a creature, an angel, unsatisfied with his position. And his descent, it was not the result of a gracious condescension. It was not a free gift, but rather he was cast down. He was hurled from the presence of the Father. You might recall a few weeks back when we looked at Psalm 51, David prays to the Lord. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Satan was cast, hurled from the presence of God. And that one who descended, well, there's no vertical ascension for him. That angel has had his wings clipped. His days of soaring above are gone as he has been bound, chained, and there is no return to prominence, but he remains below. Not so with the sun. The sun who descended is not a creature. And having descended into the depths of depravity, suffering, and ugliness, we see in our text today that through these Old Testament passages, The author of Hebrews wants to make us assured of the fact that there is a glorious ascension. There was a glorious royal enthronement after the descent. In verse 13 of our text, our author quotes the psalm that was our Old Testament reading today. The psalm that is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It's the most quoted passage or reference passage in the entire Bible. Psalm 110. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is that famous psalm of David that begins, the Lord says to my Lord. Right? That's that psalm where David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gets to eavesdrop on the conversation, the intra-Trinitarian conversation of father and son. David gets to hear the words of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal God of Israel, speaking to his Lord. And then David records the conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It doesn't get much better than that. David is getting to listen into an intra-Trinitarian conversation, Father and Son talking to one another. And we have the luxury to hear it if we have the ears to hear And what exactly do we hear in that divine conversation that our author quotes? The father tells the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Christ descends and now ascends to the throne room. He ascends as the risen, victorious, historically vindicated king of the cosmos. Christ's superiority is far beyond that of the angels. For to what angel did God ever say, hey, come sit at my right hand? So when Christ ascended, he acquires this sort of vertical, spatial superiority to the angels. 
far above the angels, next to his father. Angels, he is so superior to. And remember, angels are being so wondrous, so glorious, that many early Christians confused them for gods. You might recall that angel worship was such a problem in the early church that Paul has to write against it at length. In Colossians, particularly, Colossians 2, Paul writes these words. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions popped up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Hey guys, don't let anyone disqualify you. By getting you to worship angels. I know this is a problem for you. Now you might be thinking, I'm not tempted to worship angels. Nor do I find anyone around me that's tempted to worship angels. But this text speaks clearly and directly to you and I. Far lesser things than angels steal our worship. We are wooed out of the worship of the radiant sun by a thousand small siren songs. The pleasures and distractions and even the good things of this world, like angels, can easily outseat and replace Christ in regards to the order of our affections. The orders of our affections are misshapen and there are a thousand small siren songs every day that compel us. They compel our loves. They draw our loves away from focusing on the radiant, effulgent face of Christ into other things. Anyone in this room that's a parent... They can understand how easy it is, how really, really easy it is to love your own children more than it is to love God. But your children and your parents and your spouse, they are creatures. And to love them more than you love the uncreated son, it will break them. And it's going to break you. Right? That's not what they were made for. So disproportionate love of them will ruin them. Love is a powerful, powerful force. It's astonishingly powerful. Right? We hear in the climax of the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 8, that love is as strong as death. And misdirected love is treacherous. It is a deadly thing. I imagine many of you will find this hard to believe, but I was a rather rambunctious child. Got into my fair share of trouble. And I was always sort of bounding around the house, stomping, thrashing, a little whirlwind of a child as some young boys are prone to be. Remember that my parents, they even had a little limerick that they would sing about me. Probably heard this little song more than any song in my youth. My parents would sing, crash, bang, boom, Justin's in the room. (laughs) Over and over again, crash, bang, boom, Justin's in the room. Besides that little jingle, my father would repeatedly chastise me when he found me leaning back in my chair, using the bed as a wrestling ring, using my mother's kitchen knives as weapons for my army men, and a host of other things. He would sternly say, maybe scream. Probably not. I must be misremembering the screaming part. But he would sternly say, Justin, use things the way they were designed. I heard that phrase in my childhood more than any phrase. 
Justin, use things the way they were designed. I find that I've turned into my father, constantly yelling at Judah, Judah, use things the way they were designed. That's not what that thing is for there. You have other things that do those things. And if our text tells us anything today, if there's anything that it teaches us, it is that we were designed to love Christ first and foremost. It's the only way to live that will not break us in some way. For it's what we were meant for. Right? We were made to love the Son. We were made for marital union with the Son. And Christ the Son, Jesus, he is worthy of that praise. He is worthy of that love. For he is far greater than the angels. Far greater indeed. So I challenge you. This morning, I want to leave you with the most basic of Christian charges. Love Jesus with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. And then go love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.